Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome. I am Lana Reed, and it's another week's edition of Don't Box Me In. You know, a few times on Don't Box Me In, we have talked to individuals who have struggled with suicide. Uh, but today we'll be exploring the other devastating side of suicide, the families and the loved ones that it leaves behind. My guest today is author Carl David, who has written a very personal book about his experience titled Baderfield, My, How My Family Survived Suicide. And I just want to take a quick moment to share some very powerful words from Carl David there from the email that he sent uh, to me when he was inquiring about being on the show. But they go, um, having lived through and survived the horrific experience of my brother's suicide, I am awakened to the real purpose in my life. I am on a mission to save lives, even one. This is my way of paying forward by taking the darkest days of my life and helping those on the final edge of desperation to see that they are loved that there is help for them, and that they are not alone. I need to let those who have walked a similar devastating path know that life does go on and that life is for the living, that we do survive. Our scars become an integral part of us as the experiences imprint our souls. But it is what we do with that information that makes us who we are in the end. I lived it and need to share my story firsthand so that it will spare others from going through it. Wow. Very, very powerful words. And with that, I want to welcome Carl David to the show today. Carl, welcome. Welcome to Don't Box Me In. Thank you, Lana. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. I just, I was reading, I, I kept on reading and rereading through the email that you sent me and you, it's just, it just touches you. And, and I think that has always been a point for me is, you know, I, I understand that the person who, who partakes in suicide is going through their own personal darkest hour and it's, it's very individualistic to them, but they don't really comprehend how many ripples it sends to so many different people. And we're going to get a chance to kind of talk about that today with you and your experience. But, um, you know, it's a story that everybody needs to hear. But before we get started, you know, I kind of want to talk about um, some other things that Carl um, has in his life. Now, you, um, your family tradition, your family business, uh, let's talk about that for a moment. You come from a long line of art dealers. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm actually the third generation in our business, which is now in its fourth generation with our sons. And um, it, we were founded about 1910 by my grandfather. And then my father jumped in from the time he was out of high school, and then my brother out of Wharton School back in the early 60s, and uh, now it's my, myself, my wife, and both our sons. So we're fully entrenched. <laughs> 1910 to 2015. And uh, may I ask, what kind of art are you guys dealing today in 2015? Of course. Uh, we still specialize in American and European paintings, drawings, watercolors, and occasional sculpture, from the 18th through the 20th century, although now we've we've crossed the border of the 20th century, we're dealing in things of the 21st century, and we still on occasion go back to things from the 17th century when we find them, um, you know, when they're fully documented and we find it appropriate and have a client for it. Okay. Now, just for the layperson who might not understand, what exactly does an art dealer do? Um, we try to make a living like anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we buy and sell paintings, and uh, we go do art fairs and things like that. We broker things. We take things on consignment. And basically, we've got a gallery with two floors of exhibition space, so periodically we will stage and hold exhibitions of different works, whether it's a theme or whether it's a general collection. And, um, you know, we just do the best we can to hope people buy the art. We can't really sell it. People have to have a passion for it, connect to it, and buy it because it's something that's going to be in their home to awaken their senses, to um, enhance their environment. And these things give dividends in beauty every day and take you on a voyage while they're growing in value. So it's a win-win long-term investment. I mean, it, it you know, it, we find that a lot of these things are in families where the, the clients will not resell them. They'll hand them down to their children or they just will live with them until they die. Yeah, you, you hear a lot of that. You know, it's passed on from generation to generation because it does have such a monetary value for a lot of those pieces. So you do hear that. Now let's do the quick plug. You know, if somebody wants to, you know, go and, and uh, get some art from you, where would we go to? Well, the websites that are easy to access are www.daviddavidgallery.com. Mm-hmm. And www.askart, that's A-S-K-A-R-T, dot com forward slash D David. Or if you just do a search for David David Gallery in Philadelphia, we'll come up in a myriad of places. Okay, so you're in Philly, the city of brotherly love, so we can go yes. out. Okay, okay. Sorry, so, I meant so you- to add that. No, no, you're you're fine. We we will get through. We got a lot of time together today, so we will oh, get good. through it all. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the, you 1910 was when the first generation started it. So, can I get a picture? Like, were you like a little kid running around in the gallery, and you started to get involved, or how did you evolve into becoming in, in into the family business? Well, I kind of grew up in it. Uh, my dad was constantly bringing paintings and furniture in the house and out of the house, and I was taken through museums. When I was growing up, um, you know, Kate played occasional baseball, but the focus was really on fine art, and uh, I couldn't help but be exposed to it. And I, I really, literally grew up with it. It was part of me. And after I got out of college, I had opportunities to go into the insurance business. I even sat for an insurance exam and passed it, and, and thought to myself, "What am I doing? You know, I have this incredible opportunity in front of me. All I have to do is really learn the business end of it." Uh-huh. Uh, and I, you know, I had a degree in business coming out of Oglethorpe College in Atlanta, and I thought I knew everything, as as most people do at that age. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so I came into the business and learned quickly that uh, the rules of the street apply, and what you learn in school is great as background noise. But you know, yes. and it, it may come in handy someday. But uh, I was very fortunate to have three years with my dad full time in business before he passed away. And then to have my brother with me to, to, you know, continue training me, if you will, and, and, you know, having me learn the business. Yeah, nothing like that on-the-job experience. Now, you're the baby of the bunch. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. Okay, so how many of you all are there or well, were there? The, we, the, there were three of us originally. Uh, I had two older brothers, and okay. uh, my, my next eldest brother, the middle child, was the one who took his life. Okay, so, um, and that would be Bruce. Bruce, and, yep. Okay. Now, was he involved in the family business as well? He was peripherally. He was going to college, and um, my father was going to set up a frame shop for him on on the upper floors of the gallery because he was so incredibly mechanically inclined. I mean, this kid could take a car apart and put it back together again. It would work. Uh, <laughs> I would do that, and it would start a fire. <laughs> <laughs> 
fact, I did that once. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us have that mechanical skill. Me, you don't want to give me a hammer or nothing. It's it's, it's a danger happening, accident waiting to happen. So I truly understand. So there's a there's a big there was a big age gap between you and uh, Bruce, correct? Yep, six years. Okay, okay. They waited a while before you came along. Okay, so he was, when this happened, uh, when Bruce took his life, you were 16, am I correct? That's correct. And, um, so he would, he would be 22. Yep. And how, if you can, if, can you recall that day for us? Oh yeah, it's, uh, it's in my mind and part of me. Um, I, the, the night before, Bruce had gone out and didn't come back, which was really out of character because we were a close-knit family, and, and we all stayed in touch. And there was no phone call. There was nothing. So mm-hmm. my parents were visibly upset. I was shaken. Alan, my eldest brother, was as well uh, nervous. And we just we didn't know whether he had gotten into an accident. We had no clue as to what, what was coming. So I said, I, I told my parents I want to stay home from school today. And they said, no, no, you go to school. You know, you have to do that. So un, unhappily, I did. And in the morning assembly, I got a call up to the podium from the principal who, as soon as I heard my name, I got the chills and I, I mm-hmm. really got nervous. Um, and he said, you have to go home. There's been an emergency. Wouldn't tell me what it was, thank God. Uh, but and I, all I could envision was Bruce had been in an accident. Something really horrible had happened. Had no clue until I walked into the front door, which took me about six minutes to get home to. Mm-hmm. And Alan told me that Bruce had taken his life. Uh, mm. which just was inconceivable. Mm-hmm. I mean, my whole world just turned black. Mm. So Bruce left the night before, and did he take his life while he was out the house? Or, yes. I mean, could you Okay. Yeah. Actually, okay. in the gallery. Oh, okay. And my father so, was the one who found him. My, oh my, 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 my. Was there any kind of... Had he had a bad day before? Did you, as a family, did you have any indication, or did he leave a note, or? There, there was no sign, no note, no indication of anything traumatic, except that his reserve unit was about to be shipped off to Vietnam. Um, but I don't know that that was the reason. Uh, we'll never know what the reason was, and okay. you know, in a, in a way, it doesn't matter because it's not going to bring him back. True. But you know, you, you talk about closure and things like that. There's no closure because even if you know what happened. Um, there's no happy ending to it. Mm-hmm. True. Because it, it doesn't matter what the reason was, whatever it was, we would have been there for him. And I, I, I kind of think, as does my wife, that um, as he was doing this, as as he had second thoughts, but it was too late. True. Okay. Okay. And you know, you, we're saying he was 22, and that's unfortunate. A lot of young people. Um, you know, they're so in the moment, you know, and they don't realize, you know, like you'd mentioned earlier, that there's people there for you. It does get better. I mean, what you're going through, what you're feeling right now is only a temporary situation. And and sometimes young people in the mentality, the the response is so drastic. And, you know, the consequences of that, um, you know, are so debilitating. And, uh, you know, I guess with what you're doing now is, you know, to reach out to people and say, look, you know, there there are some options for you. You don't have to take this route, um, you know, because I, I can just only imagine within your family, not only did he harm himself, um, Bruce harm himself, but the impact that he left, the devastation he left throughout your whole family um, was 
you know, unmeasurable, I'm assuming. Yes, that is correct. I mean, um, as my mother used to say, when someone takes their life, they take their family with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't die alone. So you come home from school and you, you get this, you know, your brother tells your older brother tells you that Bruce is now not with us anymore. Um, I mean, does does the family? I mean, how how what what is the response? I, I can only imagine. You know, I'm I'm just trying to picture. How do we move forward as a family from there? Um, what are, does your your mother come in and console everybody? Is your dad like you know? Okay, we're gonna suck this up. I mean, what is how does the family respond to this? Well, first you cave because there's nothing else you can, you can, nothing else you can do. I mean, there's a stage of disbelief and incredulity. It's just an, it, it's just like it's a bad nightmare uh, mm-hmm. from which you can't escape. I mean, there's just there's no way to go. Um, you know, my mother just gotten out of the hospital after having a hysterectomy, and and she was in bed. Mm. And um, you know, we just we just pulled together the best we could. Um, we didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, there was this, this was uncharted territory, and eventually we all got help because mm-hmm. without that, it's just it's monstrous. It's too big for any one person to handle alone, and a family could rip themselves apart or pull together. And you know, we we chose to pull together. We Alan and I were protective of our parents, and they were protective of us. And at one point, my mother used to tell me that you know she and my dad would talk and say, "Sam, we've got two other children to live for." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. basically what happened. That, that was probably the only reason they survived it. Yeah, I can, I can, I can imagine. Especially me being a mother, you know, to lose a child, and then you know you have to refocus and readjust and say, wait a minute, I, t- I do have two other living children here that I, ha- I have to collect myself for and and be right. present for. So I, I can truly understand that. Um, we are at the time for our first commercial break. Carl, stay with me. We'll be right back right after this. Okay. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Today I am with the author of the book, Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide, Mr. Carl David. And uh, we are discussing the uh, devastating effects that an individual leaves a family with when they do decide to take their life. And uh, we're discussing his older brother, Bruce, today. Now, Carl, what, what year was that that Bruce committed suicide? 1965. 1965. So I'm going to assume that the knowledge, the resources, um, the acceptance of suicide was uh, not as vast as it is today. Is that that? That's correct. Um, you know, suicide in those days was looked upon as a look the other way. It was a heinous act. It was uh, despicable, and nobody did that. You have to be sick to do something like that. I mean, it's, it was, it was ugly enough that nobody wanted to recognize it, acknowledge it, or even probably do anything about it, you know, mm-hmm. except to turn the other way. Mm-hmm. So, and you mentioned something just now, you know, people assume that you have to be sick to do something like that. Now, what, your memories of Bruce, because we get these stereotypes, these misconceptions of people that do commit suicide, that they're gloomy, they're sitting off in the corner, there's this dark cloud over them. I mean, you've mentioned that he was good with his hands and, and the frame shot thing, but his personality, his spirit, what do you recall about your older brother, Bruce? He was um, not someone you would ever think would do um, a life-ending act like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he 
or at least overtly, he was happy. Um, he was very affable. Everybody loved him. He had more friends that you could, than you could count. Mm-hmm. And um, he was if if he knew you, you were his best friend. I mean, he was mm-hmm. just as open and warm as anybody could be. So whatever demons were going on inside him, he kept them pretty well hidden. Wow! You know, it just uh, it was totally out of character. I mean, and and I, I guess as a family that would make it more perplexing because you go through. I'm assuming you go through these phases of okay. I'm angry, I'm frustrated because I don't understand this. You didn't seem to be in that place. You know, I thought you were happy. And then you reflect, you know, back on yourself, like, what did I miss? So now I'm going through the guilt phase. I'm, 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 I can just imagine that it's just a whole range of emotions that that experience took you guys through. It, absolutely. I mean, the first thing you feel is the grief, and then you feel the anger, then you feel the guilt, and then you wonder, why didn't you see something? Was there something we missed? I mean, was there something that was not even obvious, but it was just there? Um, and, and, you know, you just, 2020 hindsight's great, but it doesn't, it doesn't resolve the situation in any way. So, you know, it was only through years of therapy that I was allowed, I allowed myself, you know, to vent all these feelings and put them into proper perspective so that yeah, the pain, yeah, that's still there. That's always mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, and it doesn't take much to open up the wound. However, <laughs> I don't feel guilty. I don't feel responsible. And I'm not angry. I mean, those mm-hmm. things I've just let go because the longer you hold one of those things, the worse the grip is that they've got on you and you can't move forward. Mm-hmm. Now, did it take you a long time to move forward or was it, it a quick healing process? No, it took a long time. Um, oh. it, it, there is no quick heal from this thing. It's just, mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, it's not like a broken bone where in six weeks you're you're back mm-hmm. to normal and you're stronger. It just it takes years, okay. a lot okay. of years. Now, uh, you guys with the art uh, dealer business, I'm assuming that in Philadelphia, um, the Davids were a pretty prominent family, and we did mention uh, this was uh, back in a time where suicide was really looked down upon and it was frowned upon. Um, did the community embrace and uplift you, or was it kind of like, uh, oh, no, you know, that's that David family. They had that son that, you know, kind of did that thing, you know. So um, what was the reaction from outsiders to you? There was a little bit of both. I mean, most people were very compassionate, caring, and, and understanding and, and supportive. But, you know, when my man went back to school, and I, I was in high school, and I'd been out for like a week or ten days, I don't remember how long, um, I, you know, as I as I say in my book, I used to walk the halls and see the, the the glares looking at me, like you know, and then looking away, and I could hear the whispers. And whether or not they were real or imagined, it it didn't matter. They were there. So mm-hmm. there's you know there is that. Oh yeah, that's a kid whose brother killed himself. You know that mm-hmm. that was there. Um, and yet the teachers I had and friends and, and neighborhood people and, and people in the community and business were more than kind. And you would be amazed at how many people had gotten into a situation of similar proportion. Um, suicide wasn't spoken about, but when when it was spoken about by us, there were any number of people who would open up and say, you know, I lost a cousin, uh, mm-hmm. I lost a parent, I lost a good friend, you know, through suicide. And, and uh, uh, not that misery loves company, it doesn't, not in that sense, but it's just incredible how the six degrees of separation are not six. Much it's much closer than that. True, true. I mean, in it, you know, like you said, misery doesn't, uh, you know, misery doesn't like company. But you, you want somebody to understand. You know, it's hard. 
um, speaking from my own personal experience, you know, and losing my husband, a lot of times people out of the kindness of their heart, you know, they'll come, oh, you know, I understand, but really you don't. You need somebody who has went through what you went through so exactly. that you can, you know, you feel like they understand your struggle. Yep. So, yep. you know, it, it's easier to bond with, especially in your situation, you know, the loved ones of this type of devastation, it's easier for them to help each other heal and grow through this process. So I can understand that. Now, you mentioned that it did take you a moment to kind of put the pieces of uh, Carl back together and, and grow from this um, as best as possible, because I'm, I'm assuming there are days where we still kind of, you know, get knocked in the gut with this. But, um you you went off to college, you said, in Atlanta. Were you still struggling with it then, or had you put the pieces back together by then? No, I was still struggling with it. It was only a few years um, after, and uh, I had gone to Temple University for two years out of high school and didn't really have much focus or care about anything, and uh, grade points slipped down. I got thrown out. My father got me reinstated, and then uh, I went to Oglethorpe in Atlanta, and I really excelled um, academically. And I was working, picked up a, a job uh, selling chemicals for a chemical company, making a little bit of money on the side. I just kind of didn't stop. But at the same time, while I was doing that, I kind of repressed the whole issue with my brother and almost um, made it or created a scenario where he was really alive, but he was on a, a, a special ops mission somewhere over in Vietnam or, you know, somewhere where, where I, I could kind of, not justify, but um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, I, I had a, I had to placate my own feelings, and I had to kind of create a scenario where I was projecting something that didn't exist. And you know, you can only do that but so long before it comes back and smacks you in the head, <laughs> uh, which is what happened. Because when I got back from school, I started to have feelings of being unreal, and I, I was unraveling, and it was <laughs> not comfortable. Fortunately, my parents took note of that, and they were pretty perceptive. Um, and they got me help. They got me to a psychiatrist who recommended another psychiatrist with whom I spent four years in a, in a psychoanalysis, and that it basically saved my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's understandable. There's sort of a coping mechanism. I mean, I'm assuming you looked up to your brother, you admired your brother, and I, I kind of still want to place him in my life somehow. So if I just imagine that, you know, he's off somewhere, you know, doing this, you know, I don't have to explain his absence, but he's kind of still here for me. I can make him real. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned, there, there does come that point in time where it's it, this is really becoming toxic here. I need to deal with the reality of what happened here. And it's good that your parents had the, the foresight to get you into therapy because I'm I'm very sure I'm very well aware that there are people who do not get the help that they need when they're going through these types of situations, which makes their life so much more uh, difficult to to bear and recover from. So you got four years of therapy. Um, what kind of, if you don't mind sharing, what type of process did your therapist take you through as you, you started to heal from this? Well, it was a psychoanalysis, so um, it started from scratch and, and, you know, worked from the surface all the way down to the, and he had described it to me as a, a tight ball of twine mm-hmm. where you take the surface string off one little piece at a time. And so you get down to the core where the, the problems have invented themselves, and that's where they stay. So once you do that, then the ghosts of the present become the ancestors of the future. Mm. Um, I, or I may have that backward, but the, the essence of it is that, you know, you get down to the, to the core problems and they kind of, you, you acknowledge them, you feel them, and then you let them go. And when you have these feelings that come up and something triggers the response, 
you hear about another suicide, uh, somebody talks about killing themselves, something you know that, that brings it right back to the forefront, you can deal with it because you feel your feelings. It's just a matter of literally feeling your feelings and working your way through them. Not getting stuck in them so that you can't move, but when you repress them, you can't move. You're stuck in mm -hmm. them. Okay, awesome. So I, awesome. I was very fortunate, very fortunate to have that experience. And when I first heard that I was a candidate for psychoanalysis, I said, oh, my God, there must be something really wrong with me. I'm sick. <laughs> Woody Allen's been in psychoanalysis for 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not doing anything for him. Oh my god! <laughs> so I, I, until I really grasped the concept, and he said, "No, no, no, you have to be really intelligent and a strong emotional person to be able to go through it." But okay. it will be well worth your while. Was it just it was. you and the family, or did everybody go through that? No, just myself. Um, my wife had the distillation of, of my experience, and she was blessed to have been able to follow through with a, with a psychoanalysis as well years later and mm -hmm. when I was finished. And uh, my parents had counseling. They had a good friend who was a psychiatrist who was actually the one I went to see who referred me to another uh, another doctor because he couldn't treat me. He was too close to the family. Okay. And, uh, and my brother also went for counseling. And, and you know, it's just uh, I always tell everybody, if you've been through it or you feel that way, then, you know, go talk to somebody. Talk to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counselor a bartender, anybody, you know, if you're feeling that way, just let your feelings out. And, you know, you'll see that it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I think that's the mistake that we make as individuals is we tend to kind of, you know, want to hold stuff in. And, and if it's just anybody, like you said, even if it's the bartender, talk to somebody. I mean, because you never know, even if that somebody doesn't have the answers, they might be able to direct you to somebody who does have the answers for you or does have the, the help that you need. So, you know... Um, and it's hard, you know, you naturally, as humans, we want to bottle stuff in, we want to keep stuff to ourselves, but we cannot get that message out enough that you are doing yourself the best, the best of favors to express what you're going through, to get it out to somebody, anybody, and, uh, you know, uh, help them, let them help you through your process. We are going to take another commercial break call. Hang in there with me. We'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Today I am with Mr. Carl David, who has written a book, Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide. And uh, we are talking about uh, his uh, experience with his brother's uh, suicide and how he has grown from that. And, and now he's helping other people with that. Um, Carl, you're now a parent. You have your own, and I'm just wondering, you know, with the therapy, the experience, and all of that, has that impacted, or do you think that it's impacted um, your parenting, or how you parent with your experience? Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, my wife and I were uh, well aware when the kids were growing up that this was something we were going to have to disclose to them and uh, try and figure out at what age so that, one, they wouldn't freak out, but, two, that they would be ready to hear it, and, three, they would understand it. Uh, not something you would tell to a, a very young child, but when the mm -hmm. kids were old enough, we sat them down and we told them what had happened because we wanted them to know that no matter what happens in their life, they can always come talk to us, whatever it is, however bad it is, uh, that, that we're here for them and that, you know, taking their life is not an option. And we really did this 
for all good intentions, but at the same time, it was kind of insurance policy for us to mm-hmm. let them know that no matter what, you know, mm-hmm. you don't do this. We're, we're there for you. There's help. Uh, and and that's, you know, that that's what we did. Okay. Now, you've now uh, kind of segued into uh, Suicide Prevention Advocate. Um, when did you start walking that path? Shortly after I wrote the book, I mean, as I was writing the book, which began as homage to my dad because he only lived eight years after my brother took his life, I knew I had to memorialize my kids who weren't yet born. I memorialize, I'm sorry, memorialize my dad for my kids who weren't yet mm-hmm. born. And I did this, and it took me, well, maybe two and a half decades to write the book because I had to keep going back. And, you know, my wife said to me at one point, if it's too painful, don't do it. And I said, no, I have to do this. I, I need to do this for them for the rest of the world to show what an incredible guy my father was and also to memorialize my brother. So as the years developed, and I went back and I dug in and I left the intellectualizing behind and went for an emotional um, avenue with the book. And I really, I mean, it was painful, you know, and the other times that I had to put it down and just let it sit for a week Mm -hmm. or a month and come back to it. I even let at times a year go by. But I was determined to do it, and I did it. And when I got my editor from the publishing house, they, they said they wanted to publish the book, but they they wanted me to show it, not tell it. They wanted mm-hmm. movie style. So I said, okay, great, because all I heard was movie. I didn't hear much else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they gave me an editor who showed me how. Not She didn't tell me. She showed me how. And in six weeks, I rewrote the book, and I knew what it had been missing. It, it had that two-dimensional feel that was now three-dimensional. Characters came to life with the dialogue, and it really became... Um, a much more inspirational, powerful read. And it sounds like it's a, a, a very downward-aiming book, but it's not. It's very uplifting. And um, in the long run, it, it became a really good tool for me to use. And I've done so many interviews, television, radio, journal, um, that I'm using the book as a tool basically to reach out. And to, you know, as you had mentioned before in the introduction, take my darkest days and do something to benefit others with them. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, you say it took you two and a half decades to write this book, and your original intent was to, you know, do something for the kids that were not, that you had not had yet um, to um, immortalize your father and memorialize your brother. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with two and a half decades, the kids are now present and grown by the time this book comes out correct in my understanding yeah. okay okay so now they're probably not only with the wife they're come, like come on dad okay come on dad we see you with this paper every now and then and you keep on like what's going on here but um two and a half two and a half decades that's a long long time to to get this out um is it is it just that it was too painful for you to write or, I mean, you've mentioned that, you know, the dimensions and stuff like that. Do you feel there was any other other things that were hindering it from coming to be or it, it was just that? It was pretty much just that. I mean, it was painful. I had to go back and, and go back to all that raw emotion and pain and had to live it and relive it and relive it. Every time I wrote another chapter, I wrote another piece of the book. I mean, it's not all that way, but there was enough of it in there that um, it required me to revisit, you know, a lot of uncomfortable material, but Mm -hmm. I knew that that was the only way this was going to be successful. I had one chance to get this out, to do it right, you know, and uh, that's what I did. 
Okay. Now, just a little off topic here because you, you did mention, um, you know, life just kind of did you the double whammy there. So you lose your brother, and then I'm understanding correctly, eight years later you lost your father? Yes, that's correct. Okay. How did he pass? He had a heart attack. Um, he was on a business trip in London and just collapsed on the steps uh, of the home he was with with a friend, and uh, that was it. My mother mm. got a call at a quarter to four in the morning, and I got the call, and then my brother got the call, and just, here we go again. Mm, mm, mm. Now, I now, it, it was our turn to take care of our mother. Yeah, I, I was I was just going to say, I can only imagine your mother like, okay, I just lost my son. Now I'm, I've lost my husband, my, my life partner. Like, really, what else can you do to me here? I mean, that that must have been like the ultimate for her. It was. It was horrible. And uh, she knew and we let her know that she needed to live for us because we needed her. Mm-hmm. So did she, did she have any – no, no, no problem. I mean, was her – did she have any time? Um, what am I trying, did she have any downtime, or did it, it set her for a loop for a while, or did she just immediately bounce back? Or no, it set her for a loop, and she didn't bounce back for a while. We all pulled together. Um, you know, it's the hardest part when all the family leaves and goes back to their own lives, mm-hmm. and uh, you're there alone, looking at all these walls where you had your your life partner because um, they had an amazing marriage, and um, you know, brief as it was, it was fiery and wonderful. So it's hard. I mean, they, you know, everybody goes back to their own lives, including myself and my wife. We went back to our apartment, and it just seemed really weird. I mean, we stayed close. We were at my mother's every day, uh, mm-hmm. and my brother was there, and, and, you know, we just, her sisters were there, and um, we had a very close-knit family, but it's still, it's just, you know, you need the comfort of everybody around you, but it's just not the same. Yeah, you know, a life. Unfortunately, you know that, and I, I feel for your loss. Yeah. Life life goes on for everybody around you while your life is kind of standing still. Um, yeah. and, and like I said, you know, for your mother to get hit with that double whammy, um, eight years is such a short span of time. People might think that that's long time, but eight, eight years is, is such a short span of time to be hit with two of those devastating um, deaths in your family. So um, is, is mom still around with us or no? No, mom passed three years ago. She was 94. God bless her. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we were very lucky to have her that long. Awesome, awesome. 94, that, that's a piece of change there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing. She really filled the gap. And uh, she had been through so much. She lost her parents at a young age. And, um, you know, then watched her, her brothers and sisters all die off before she did. And she was like last man standing. Mm-hmm. But, but persisted. I mean, she was incredible. <laughs> She says, okay, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to take a licking and keep on picking, right? Yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> she was made of the right stuff. I like those type of ladies, feisty little like You're not going to get mm-hmm. me. I, I like that. So with the um, suicide prevention advocate work that you're doing, um, what, 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 how, how, what direction has that led you? What do you do now with that? Well, I'm trying to reach out to some organizations. I have for, to a couple, and I really haven't gotten much of a response back, which surprised me, but... Everywhere I go, um, you know, I talk about it, and I, I make mention of the book, and I'm, I, I do, you know, I blog about it. Uh, so I'm trying to reach a, a broader audience, and what, ultimately, what I would like to do, what I had mentioned before about a movie, I, I am working toward having a film made because I think in this generation of kids that are growing up, they're they're very visual, but they don't mm-hmm. read much except for what they have to read in school, which is the other area I'm trying to have the book made mandatory reading in schools all over the country. 
That's mm-hmm. a pretty big endeavor, but I figure if I do this a step at a time, it'll take off and it'll snowball. Oh, yes, yes. Kids these days are very visual, you know, um, especially with the uh, the invention of the social media. They want their quick visual, you know, couple seconds, you know, or a couple characters. They want it all present, you know, presented to them very quickly and fast. Um, but also, you know, I think what you're doing and the subject matter that you have, it needs to be addressed with young people because you hear all these things that they're involved with, um, with bullying and, and these things that they go through, um, cyberbullying and stuff like that. You do hear these stories of young kids, I mean, 12 and 13 and 14, you know, taking their lives because, you know, um, somebody, you know, said something to them on Facebook or something like that or said something about them on, you know. So I think it's very important that we do reach out to these younger kids about these issues because, you know, like I had said earlier, you know, when you're 12 and you're 13, somebody calls you a bad name and you're just, it's just devastating to you. The world is ending. It can never get any better. And this is the worst it's possibly going to be. But as a, you know, I'm 45, you know, I know like, whatever, that's just momentary. You know, it's, it's going, it's going to get better. So I think it's very important, you know, that we do get into the uh, school system, like what you're trying to do and, and talk to these kids and let them know that, you know, the pain that you're, you're feeling right now, it's only momentarily, it it does get better. So, you know, I, I, I encourage you. And I, I mean, I think it's wonderful that you are trying to get your book and your message into the school system. I think that's where it'll be very, very effective. I, I agree, and I think that, you know, in today's world, uh, kids are not just bullied, but, you know, if a, a girl's boyfriend breaks up with them or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to kill myself. My boyfriend broke up with me. And, you know, when you hear those words, your ears need to go up and you really need to pay attention because you never know when someone really means it. Yeah. You know, and, and that brings to point a lot of things people say. You know, we dismiss it because, oh, you know, they're just saying that in play. They're they're saying it in slight. But um, maybe from your experience, now you can tell people, like, no, you probably need to stop and really listen and ask the person how they're feeling because they might actually be thinking that. I mean, a lot of times we do as people just kind of, oh, she's playing, she's joking, or he's just saying that, you know. But people could actually have these feelings. Yes, absolutely, they can, and some do, and you just can't take it too lightly. You know, if you can talk to someone for 10 minutes who's on that edge, which is what a lot of the organizations will do, you get them on the phone, um, that 10 minutes can save a life, and it generally does. I mean, if somebody's so determined to take their life, they're going to do it anyhow, but if it's a a temporary situation that they can't see through or see past, that 10-minute window can literally save their life. Give them a chance to see that it, you know there is help for them. Okay. Okay. So where are you at in the process of getting your book into schools? Are um, is there something that uh, you know we as um, the audience can say? You know, we've got parents, a lot of parents out there saying, you know, I want Carl to come and talk at my school, or you know, I want his book to be uh, in the school system. Is there something that we can do on our end to assist you with that? No, oh, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I guess if, if just by spreading the word, I mean, I would love to be able to um, have to send, tell my publishers, you know, get these books to this school, that school, whatever, and get a list of the schools. I, you know, I'd be willing to give them. I don't care because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's just this is not about money. This is about saving lives. And um, I would be more than willing to go talk to schools and talk to, 
the military bases, you know, people on that, because in the military, you've got 22 veterans a day take their life, and in, sure. in the active duty, at least one a day, a soldier takes their life, and, you know, these numbers are, are just insane. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody's got to do something about it, and, you know, whether I'm the chosen one to do that, I'm happy to be on the front line and go out and, and, and raise awareness and talk to people, you know, because I think the more we talk about it, the faster the problem will be put back. It'll never go away altogether. I know that um, this is like an illness. It's like a disease that it can't be eradicated, but it can certainly be reduced. Um, and um, I don't know. I mean, I guess just spreading the word would be great, you know, if there's any way to reach anybody in the educational system, which is what I'm trying to do. It's it's, it's tough. It's an uphill battle. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to quit. There you go. I like that. I like that. Well, we're going to take our last commercial break of the day, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more about how Carl's going to save some lives. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am with the author of the book, Bader Field, How My Family Survived Suicide, Mr. Carl David, and uh, a very powerful story he has shared with us about his brother, Bruce, who uh, took his life at the age of 22. Carl's now um, segued into suicide prevention advocate, and we were talking before the break about, you know, getting his book into the uh, school system, you know, helping kids out, um, especially teenagers, I can I can see where they would very much benefit from the information that you have, the life experience that you have. But you'd also mention the military, and it brings the thought back that you mentioned that maybe Bruce's, maybe possibly, we don't have any closure on it, but maybe possibly Bruce, because he was about to be shipped off somewhere that uh, could have uh, affected his decision. But the military, I don't think people really give enough attention to the fact that um, suicide and the, the psychological struggles that our military uh, are subjected to. Um, it, I mean, do you have any numbers out there for uh, the suicide, uh, the effects of suicide in the military that we experience? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, this is a growing issue. And as I had mentioned before, that, you know, among veterans, 22, 22 a day take their life, which 22. is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least one or two a day in active duty. And I, I've just learned that um, the National Guard has a higher instance of suicide than the Army. Mm. Uh, you know, these these people come back with the fog of war and having lived through these atrocities. Sometimes they come back without limbs. Sometimes they come back brain damaged. They come back wounded. And if, if not that even, just the fact that they've been witness to or had to participate in, in these gruesome uh, Acts of war leaves you scarred. I mean, you can't mm. you can't leave that behind. You know, you talk about uh, post traumatic stress syndrome. Um, it, it's it's quite real. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, there's no way around that except by getting professional help. Mm-hmm. It's always been amazing to me. We really, really we don't pay our military personnel the best of salaries. Everybody knows that, and then we send them off to do such devastating. Um, acts to other human beings and then we bring them back with no detox quote unquote counseling or professional help and expect them to go back into society society and just function normally and it's like the whole design is set up to fail I mean and like you said we see 
you know, the veterans are 22 a day, um, armed forces. One, I mean, and, and that's why we get these numbers here. And you would think that as a society, we would be paying more attention to this, but it's it's still a matter where we just kind of want to look the other way. And you would think that the military personnel, these people that we send off to protect the the freedom of this country that we would give more attention to. It's just such a sad state of affairs. It is a sad state of affairs. I mean, it's, it's almost like these people get used and then abused when they come back. They're ignored. It's changing a little bit, but it's so slow to change. I mean, you read about all the scandals with the veterans' hospital facilities, mm-hmm. and they're rife with mistreatment and, you know, uh, lies and, and uh, statistic changing. And, and they, you know, these, these guys have put their lives on the line for us. I mean, is that how you treat somebody who does that? Mm-hmm. It's just so wrong. It is so wrong, so, so wrong. I mean, and it's it's very embarrassing as a nation that we allow this to happen to these people. I mean, um, you know, not only is suicide, but, I mean, our largest homeless population, a lot of those are veterans. And so, I mean, for the fact that this, this individual, male or female, has gone off for some minimal salary and fought for this country and they come back and they don't have a place to stay is for me it's very embarrassing and then you know also with what we're talking about today you might have some um psychological emotional issues residuals from doing what you did to protect this company that you are now thinking about taking your life and i still don't provide you assistance right is is further embarrassing. So yeah. um, we have we have much work to do, and uh, hopefully, what you're doing now, um, you'll be able to get in there to certain demographics and populations, and 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 assist these areas that we have. Now, I want to ask you before we do close up and wrap up for today, um, because you have gone through this, and I, I always feel that nobody is best served to give advice to other individuals than those who have actually went through it. Um, so if you could, if you had an opportunity to sit down um, with a family or a loved one who's experienced suicide, you know, what advice, what tips or pointers would you give them on how to move forward? Well, I would first counsel to get professional help. Um, that this is not something that's going to go away on its own. I would also counsel them not to blame themselves, that uh, this is something that you may or may not have seen any signs for, but you can't take responsibility for what someone else does. And the best thing you can do is to try and, and deal with it, cope with it, feel your emotions, and live your life, because that's what this person would have wanted you to do. They, you know, This is an act that they took out on themselves, even though it affects everybody else. Uh, the, 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 you know, in my belief and my knowledge, spirit lives on. You can't kill spirit. And mm-hmm. I've had, I've had signs and messages from my brother and my father over the years. So I know that, you know, death is just basically a portal to the next dimension. Uh, you know, not, not to wane spiritual here, but I really, mm-hmm. I, I know that for fact. So, Understood. you know, you have to, you have to move on and, and live your life as best you can because we get one shot at this and, you know, you want to, you want to live your life to the fullest and you keep that person in mind with you always and you know that in spirit they're, they are there with you watching over you. Awesome. Awesome tips. Awesome tips. Now, if you're sitting in front of the person, um, let, let's, let's go back for a while. Let's say you're sitting in front of Bruce the night before. And Bruce is talking to you and saying, you know what, Carl, I'm thinking this is, this is, I can't take this anymore. I'm thinking I need to end this here. 
what is the conversation you have with an individual who's thinking that I cannot move forward another day? Well, I wish I would have had that opportunity, um, obviously. But, you know, if, if, if I did, I would have gathered the rest of our family and we would have had a, a, an intervention and, um, you know, explained to him that whatever was going on, whatever you were feeling, whatever seemed so um, impossible to overcome, we're there for you and we'll help you get through it. It's not the end of the world. You know, uh, just give us give us some time and let's work on it. You know, we're there for you. There's no judgment, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, we all love you and we'll, we'll do this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, really what will impact and change a lot of things. And I think we've said this numerous times throughout the show today, is I think when somebody is really feeling in that moment and feeling that way, they don't understand that there is somebody out there um, for them to talk to. There is somebody out there that um, might not understand their exact situation, but can be compassionate enough to take some of that weight off of them. Um, and I, I just think if we could get people in that mode of talk to somebody, anybody, I mean, and, and, and that might be the biggest part of the battle, you know, because yep. when you're you're in that psychological state, you really are internalizing a lot of stuff. But I mean, if we could just really with the work that you're doing and, and there's other people out there doing, if we could just express to them, just to, if it's if it's the mailman, you know, just talk to somebody about what you're going through, because that person can can point you in the right direction to somebody that can possibly help you. Yeah, so, exactly. Good. So, Carl, where do people pick up a copy of the book, Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide? Well, if you you can get it online in about 60 different digital um, markets, Amazon, the Apple iBook Store, uh, Kindle, Nook, Kobo. The list goes on and on and on. And if, if you can't find it on those sites, which you should be able to, uh, if you just do a search for Baderfield, how My Family Survived Suicide or Baderfield by Carl David, it'll come up in a myriad of places. And it, I mean, I think it's downloadable at this point for like, it, it was seven ninety nine when it first came out on, a, on a, an ebook, um, mm-hmm. electronic format, but now I think it's like three ninety nine or something. Uh, and then you have it forever, you know, and you can share it. It's a great read, and, and I really would um, ask that if anybody does buy the book, pass it along to somebody after you're finished with it who you think it would benefit uh, share it, you know, just uh, just help me get it out there because I think it'll make a difference. And I feel like Schindler, you know, if I could <laughs> one more, you know, one and, more. Uh, that's my mission. One more. And also, I'm assuming that if anybody's in the Philadelphia area, we could just go to the art gallery and uh, get a copy and have you uh, sign it for us and actually Absolutely. talk to the person. Yep. Okay. Awesome. We'll awesome. have some copies here. And if not, <laughs> they buy a copy and want me to sign it, I'll be happy to sign it. Awesome, awesome. Carl, we are at the end of our hour. I have truly, truly enjoyed you today. My guest is that today has been Mr. Carl David. Visit his website, carldavid.com. Pick up the book. Uh, check out the art gallery information. Carl, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I wish you all the work, uh, uh, the best with the valuable work that you're doing. Awesome, awesome time with you today. Thank you, Lana. I really appreciate it. By the way, the website is Carl E. David. If they forget oh. the E, I get a guy who gets really pissed off at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Carl E. David. Don't forget that. Carl E. David.com. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember, when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week. <laughs>